What's going on guys? Philosopher here and welcome back to FGC Philosophy. This is a podcast where I combine personal development and competitive gaming. Primarily fighting games because that's what I love, but I have extended to other games mainly because it's part of my career now. For those who don't know, I'm the esports coordinator over at Western Michigan University, which basically means I run their whole arena and also do a lot of the running of the program itself. That's really awesome. I also help coach for various colleges and high schools as well. Lots of different places that I'm doing things in the esports scene, commentary for different games now, so it's a lot of things that go on, but I digress. This episode I'm going to mainly focus on the topic. I wanted to go a little bit more, but I've just been busy. I haven't uploaded in two weeks if you haven't noticed, and uh, I really want to just get back into the groove of things. Uh, I got sick and then I got busy with work and, and, and just haven't gotten back up to speed yet with my production. I've been productive in a lot of other areas of my life, but when it comes to my content, that sort of took a backseat for a little bit. Family comes first, then my career, uh, and then when I have time, I focus on this as well. And I want to keep working on it because I want to turn this into something. But that said, I want to get to the point. I had a guest on the show. Uh, I met him when I went to Battle at the Barn over in Lafayette, Indiana. We did the Rocket League tournament. He was one of the other coaches at another school. But nonetheless, Gator Mellon over at St. Ambrose University. Uh, Really nice guy. Enjoyed the conversation. I met him at like a coach's meeting after one of the tournaments. We talked for a good while, had a good mindset. I was really interested. Uh, he's a graduate assistant as well, so he's technically able to play on the team, but he's also a coach. So he's kind of a student coach uh, that also is really good at the game. So it's really interesting to get that perspective of someone who's coaching a team, but also can probably play better than most of the players on that team, or at least on an equal level. And just his mindset, he recommended some books. If you remember our earlier episode, I might have mentioned the uh, Inner Game of Tennis was the book. But nonetheless, we sort of get right into the conversation, and I want this to be a starting point for conversations, hopefully. So share your comments in the comment section down below, whether you're using the podcast version or you're watching this on YouTube. Either way, I want to start talking about these topics and really getting that conversation. I'm hoping to get more guests in the show, whether it be from the fighting game community or other esports scenes. So if you have any suggestions or people that you know that you would like me to have a conversation with, have a little bit more of a casual conversation, but also focus towards mentality, person development, just general improvement in the game of your interest. I have a lot of fascination with a lot of competitive games. I play a small number of them, but I'm interested in multiple games. So I'm really glad that uh, I made the decision to sort of expand out of just fighting games and into other scenes, especially since I'm working in the scene. It's really been something I've wanted to talk about, but I just felt weird doing non-FGC stuff on my podcast. But since the pandemic, I've been doing it anyway. A lot of political, social topics I've been talking about. So all that said, I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. I had a great time. I'm hoping to have him back on the show so we can talk about the book that I mentioned before, The Inner Game of Tennis. If you're interested, I'll put links in that down below. Uh, it's really, really good. I would compare it to The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin. If you're a regular of this podcast, you know I've talked about this a lot. So make sure you check it out on my recommendation. If you want to get it on Audible, you can get it for free for a month so you don't have to commit to anything. You can use the link in my description down below. Full disclosure, I do get a small commission if you do get it. But if you don't keep it, then no harm, no foul. Try something and you don't like it. But at least you know now. Make sure you check that out. Either way, thank you guys so much and I hope you enjoy the show. Update where they introduced basketball into the game. And so I thought that was pretty cool. I wanted to play basketball with cars. I thought it was fun. But what really got me hooked was when I wanted to get better at the game. So I started with hoops, and I was just kind of playing around, hanging with friends, and just kind of enjoying the game. 
uh, just kind of doing whatever. And then I uh, started to get on YouTube to learn more about the game. And that's where I found the first RLCS. And I was watching uh, Flipside Tactics versus I Buy Power. Uh, good old Cuxer versus uh, Kronovi, that big that big thing. And so I watched that, and then, I don't know, from that point on, I just kind of... It, it's weird. It was like I blinked, and then six years later, I'm like top 1,000 in the world at Rocket League, and just just hanging out. I ran into a bunch of people. Um, I have friends from all across the country that I've never met in person who have been my twos and threes partners for years, and that's how I got started with Rocket League. My only reason is probably the feel. In terms of like most games that I've played, um, I would say Warframe and CS are two of my most satisfying, but Rocket League's movement mechanics and how you play the game and what you can do with the game, um, it just felt very raw compared to any other game. If you look at Rocket League, there's really no way to cheat in it. Like, yeah, you could give yourself unlimited boost, but it's, it's pretty obvious, and that's going to be really hard to get past any type of server if they set it up right. Whoever wins in that game is the better player. If you have the better control, you can always figure out where you messed up or where they messed up or anything. You can't blame like a certain move for being too overpowered. You can't you can't do anything. It's whoever is the better player is going to win in Rocket League nine times out of ten. When it comes to mechanics, in fighting games we call it execution. Mechanics basically the same <laughs> word. With fighting games, there's like a science that karate, like there's specific forms that you can do that are very optimal and help you with like the mechanics of it. And once you get down a lot of the mechanics, then the chess part opens up a lot more and you start to play the mind games against your opponents and your matchups and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But I always felt like the mechanical skill required, one, it was really hard, but also it was very satisfying to master over the years. And I've gotten a lot better. The game I play now, Guilty Gear Strive, is the one I'm, I'm most into now and I've gotten like to the top rank of that. Wasn't as hard as I thought it would be to do, but like, I'm still trying to work on the ranks and stuff like that. I try to get like top 1,000 or something just to see if I can do it. Mm -hmm. But that process over the years of playing different fighting games and then off and on for a long time playing Rocket League and and watching pro Rocket League and understanding the more I watched a pro, the more I appreciated what could be done in the game and the more challenging it I understood it to be to learn the mechanics or learn uh, the execution of the game. Even though I'm still on my journey with learning the mechanics of the game, it's been like, very rewarding. It's similar and different to fighting games in that sense because it is very freeform. It is very raw when it comes to doing the motions. And I'm still just like finding different realizations like rotations, for example. I'm just trying to do air <laughs> roll, I should say. I'm just working on doing the speed rings and just, I can do it now. I used to not be able to beat it. Now I can beat it. Now I can beat it under like eight minutes or so. But now I'm trying to add air rolls into that. And like, I'm forcing myself mm -hmm. to just air roll and pay attention to what I see. And I've learned so much just from doing that about like where to put my eyes. What should I be paying attention to? Like, how does my car move when I do air roll left and right versus air roll left and left or up and down? Something like that. Mm -hmm. And just the small nuances of how my car behaves and how... I'll go play some ring games and I can touch the ball so much better because I can control my car so much better. So there, there's like this weird satisfaction when it comes to Rocket League that's very different from shooters and stuff like that and mobiles. I played a, I played a good bit of those, but when it comes to Rocket League, it's its own beast because it is very <laughs> much like a freeform 360 degrees of movement sort of game. I like the comparison with FGC um, games because I draw the biggest comparison to Smash, actually. Um, just how freeform it is, just kind of going off the platform and doing whatever you kind of want to do, yeah. um, and just kind of wherever your character is, you, you just you just do that. Um, but especially with like Rocket League, you can really play the game however way you want. There's only two things that really matter, and that's your speed and your first touch. If you're faster than to the other person, then you're going to get the opportunity to get a first touch. And if you get a good first touch, you're going to do whatever you want with the ball. 
it just depends on how they kind of challenge you. But that's that's pretty much it. You can do whatever you want from that point on. You don't really need to know how to flip reset in the current meta now. It it helps. It's another tool. Mm-hmm. But I have a, a pretty big philosophy with Rocket League that fast players aren't fast because they're fast. They're fast because they're smart. It's all about the pathing when you get your boost, how you angle your car, how you get your touch. If you take the smarter, more efficient route, you will be the faster player. Yeah, I, I like that. And then when it comes to getting the first touch, that is very similar to the philosophy of fighting games where you keep the pressure. Uh, <laughs> and they have opportunities to guess. You know, there's there's little 50-50s. It's a term in fighting games as well. Mm-hmm. It's a very similar situation. They have to guess 50-50, which one am I going to do more than like... Mm-hmm. A 50-50 in Rocket League is more like a... <laughs> like multiple different directions that it can go in. So mm-hmm. yeah, sometimes it's it's very specific to just two opportunities. Sometimes it's like four or six, something like that. Mm-hmm. I can see the parallels there. At the same time, it's just incredibly different. But I, I do want to yeah. ask, how did you become a coach? Where did that come from? Going to my college years, um, my sophomore year uh, is where I started to get into like competitive Rocket League, finding like the higher level and wanting to compete. Um, and so I competed there uh, for about three years with the tournaments and just kind of what we were, whatever we were doing, doing qualifiers, doing leagues, just kind of figuring out the scene because it wasn't super big back in, um, I believe that'll be like 2017, 2018, 2019, that range. Uh, like Rocket League was growing, but it still wasn't like where it is today. So like finding tournaments was a little bit easier just because there's only a couple, but it was also harder to kind of get into them and play. Uh, and there wasn't really a collegiate scene from what I remember, but I was just playing and I met Chase. Chase is the one that started the program and I just kind of stuck with it. I was doing tournaments with him, but I got to a point in about 2018 to 2019 where uh, I got really burnt out from the game. I was taking it a little too seriously and I lost the the fun behind it. I lost the reason why I enjoyed playing the game. And so I took an eight month break. And so I actually just put the whole game down and I did not play it for eight months. I didn't watch anything. I didn't even do anything. I was, I was pretty much done with rocket league, but working with the program there, hosting tournaments, we saw an opportunity to take the program to the varsity level. And we actually did. Uh, we got a whole facility built on campus uh, that I was a part of setting up and planning. Um, super cool one of my most proud moments but it was like five years of hard work put into a building on campus and i never thought i'd actually leave a mark on campus so it was super cool but once the varsity thing got set up i saw there was a a need for a rocket league team because i was pretty much the head of it i was the game coordinator i was the captain and without me on the team there was no team and so i did another tryout and instead of getting my typical three to four players that want to try out with all different ranks i got 12. um a bunch over GC1 and a good balance, but no one was quite where I was at, um, where I believed I was at. And I also just didn't know how I felt about playing. So I just decided to take the coaching role. Um, and so I started coaching two teams there instead of one. Um, and then I also picked up third party coaching at St. Ambrose during my senior year while also trying to finish out my capstone and get my degree. And I just found it was a lot more rewarding and entertaining for me to help others succeed rather than take myself to that level. It's like, I've always kind of wanted to be a pro, but once you really push down and you realize how much you need to carve away at time and like practicing your mechanics, I was still really burnt out from doing that. And I didn't want to get back into that, but I 
really wanted to help other people who wanted that get there. And so that's how I got into coaching. My style of coaching. I think this goes all the way back just to the way I was raised. Growing up, I had a split family. My mom and my dad were never actually together. They never got married. Um, I only really have one memory of them being together. I've always just kind of had a split family. And so growing up, I always had two different types of images that I was trying to fulfill, both trying to make my mom's side happy and my dad's side happy. And so growing up, it made me not so much a people pleaser, but I am always looking for ways to help in certain areas or what I can do or what I can do to make everybody happy. It kind of just got to a point where I realized I couldn't really do that. So I got really quiet and I just started observing. That's pretty much where like it all started, where I start observing. I start trying to figure out why things work the way that they do. It doesn't matter what the topic is. I will go all the way until I completely understand it fully. I don't try to think about it or give it like a number. I go based off of feeling. I try to feel what that is like. When I'm watching players do flip resets or air dribbles or I'm watching them make cool plays, I'll go and I'll watch the video or a tutorial or something and I'll try to figure it out. But it's always about replicating the feeling for me. I try to put myself in that headspace of anybody that I'm coaching. What does it feel like for what they're doing? And I try to find where the hiccups are or the hitches or what might be a mental block or anything. And I look at it from every level, whether it's emotional, it's mental, um, it's physical, it's in-game, it's out-of-game, uh, your personality, whatever. I look at all of it, and I've always looked at it from an objective point of view because I'm always looking to try to help people get to the next level. That's the only thing that I've ever really cared about is how do I get to the next level? What, mm-hmm. what are the, the little pieces that need to happen to make things work? For Rocket League, it was one of those games that the fundamentals of it were so raw, your car hits the ball. You got boost. You got a couple of jumps. You just need to put it in the net. That's it. And so putting myself through thousands and thousands, I've got about, what, 7,000, almost 8,000 hours in Rocket League. And most of it's in like free play and also putting in the games is just thinking about why people do the certain decisions that they do and how can I bait them to do something else. And so I think about and I watch everybody's point of view, and when I'm watching it, I can almost literally put myself in their brain and know exactly what they're thinking in each step and why they made the decision that they did. And then I adjust from there. There's a couple of different topics, a couple of ideas I got there. You talked about your experience with your parents. I'm curious if there's Mm -hmm. any other things that you've experienced or stuff that you've learned over the years. Like For me, karate is a big Mm -hmm. influence on how I teach and how I coach. So Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if there's any other influences for you that have helped you with how you do your coaching style. Uh, Yeah, there's a lot. And um, I really really just factor it to my whole life, my whole upbringing, but more specifically... Uh, the the duality of my parents' situations. My dad was a little bit more lower income, um, and so I was in a lot of uh, a lot of low income areas, low, low socioeconomic areas, where um, we lived in a motel. We lived in my great grandma's house, where four of us shared one bed, and we just slept in like one room. Or when I was at the motel, I just kind of slept on one like strip of carpet. And then on the opposite side, having my mom being more upper middle class or almost upper class in some scenarios and getting to travel a lot. So I've seen, uh, I've traveled more than most people will ever travel in their life. I've been to Ireland, Scotland, Wales, London, uh, Jamaica, Alaska, Mexico a couple times, just like all over the place. And she never went to the touristy area. She went to the local areas. So I got to see a lot of culture and I got to see a lot of perspectives. And so that's why I wanted to like talk about my background is because it gave me like perspective on a lot of things. And I took that into everything I did. And that observation was to get perspective. 
Um, but also growing up, I was in a lot of sports with my dad. I pretty much played every sport and had coaches all over the place. Uh, my dad was my coach for basketball for a long time. Um, I was pretty good at baseball. And then in high school, I got really into weightlifting for a little bit. And in every area, any sport that I was in, the one thing that I always tunnel visioned on was technique, how to execute it the right way. So, like, if you ever look at my jump shot in basketball, my jump shot is a perfect jump shot. It may not go in because I don't practice all that often, but I will always have the good release. I'll have, I'll use exactly what I'm supposed to use. Um, when it was, when I was in weightlifting, uh, I never lifted the most weight, but my coach always used me as demonstration because I always hit perfect technique. That was the only thing that I really looked at was how do I do it the right way? Um, and then around the end of high school is when I stopped really playing basketball. It wasn't my main sport anymore. And I picked up ultimate Frisbee. I found that when I went to band camp with some friends and just kind of caught them throwing around. None of my friends were into it, but I really wanted to learn how to throw. So for about two years, I went out into my backyard and taught myself how to throw perfectly. And then I joined an ultimate team. I had a perfect flick and a perfect backhand already. Well, not perfect, but pretty good flick and pretty good backhand. And I was immediately the handler and was immediately the captain of the team. And everybody else was just kind of like, we're just here playing ultimate. I just, I didn't really care about like my status or where I was at. I just wanted to do things right. And so when I take that into my coaching, that's the only thing I want to see is I want to see things done right. But right is also objective or subjective, especially in Rocket League. Like the only thing that is right in Rocket League is you put the ball in the net and you don't get the ball put in your net. <laughs> pretty much instant feedback yeah no absolutely i kind of relate to a lot of the things that you were saying as well um, one of the things that stuck out to me is i use the term contrast a lot because i mm -hmm. i had a lot of different we moved a lot uh, my dad worked on power plants so i moved to a couple different places I, I started in new jersey my mom was from the hood so i kind of had like that culture that stayed with us after we moved away from the hood um we lived near atlantic city new jersey and just like her side of the family was usually lower income and, and uh, you know, I just was used to that kind of people. I was like, that's kind of just where I grew up. And then we also moved to the suburbs to in Alabama, though. So like casual open racism and stuff like that. Just it's it was such a different world versus where I was from, where you'd like I would fight you normally. Some mm -hmm. of the people said what they were saying or how I was perceiving it. And I was just like, not the thing here. And I was like, that's weird mm -hmm. that you don't solve your problem with like violence. I never started fights or anything like that. I got picked on a lot, but mm -hmm. like I was a big kid, like throughout my life, you saw me, I'm very tall. And so I was going to target <laughs> prison, right? It's like you go for the biggest target. So I learned how to fight like at a young age, just because I didn't want to get beat up and I hated mm -hmm. hurting other people. But all this experience plus moving around to different locations. And then after I graduated high school, um, while I was going to college, I would travel to different places as well. Uh, lived in Florida for a little bit with a friend, uh, lived in San Diego, uh, Nevada. So I, I learned a lot about American culture. I can't really talk about, other than Jamaica, my dad's from Jamaica, so I visited there when I was much, much younger. But all of that really helped to shape when it comes to, you know, paying attention to people. I was very, very similar to that where um, I wanted to not necessarily please people, but I want to understand how to avoid like awkward situations and how do I uh, make things work in my favor if I need to mm -hmm. do so. And so like understanding how people think, what their motivations are, just building like kind of mental dossiers in your head of like how I I'm, I predict you're going to react this way if you have learning yeah. about psychology and all that kind of stuff really helped with not just my coaching, but like my content, obviously, and then how I coach as a business, like life coaching, stuff like that. But also when it comes to um, coaching games, I feel like the biggest part of it is the mental part for me a lot of times. I feel like 
okay, novice players, novice to beginner players, their biggest issue before they hit like a, a certain threshold is like the mental emotional aspect of it. But once you get past mastering a lot of mechanics, right, then <laughs> you have like a kind of a different mindset and there's still, there can still be ego there. But like you'll find that a lot of them have mastered the basics and, and knowing how to work with them. People who want to get to the next level, usually they're already committed. Like some people don't <clears> even know if they're fully committed, but they want to win all the time. And it's like, are you committed to the work required to do <clears> it? And the people that are, you know, that just cuts off a lot of different type of mindsets. And it's just like weird as you get higher to the top. They're more bought in, so it's easier to coach them usually. But if they have a really <clears> big <throat> ego, then it's really hard to coach them. Sometimes because they're not coachable, it's the same reason why they probably won't get better. Because they have some sort of like mental blockage where they are either <clears throat> egotistical or too insecure to acknowledge it. Or just like don't want to talk about it or whatever it may be. <clears throat> uh, so kind of a bit of a tangent there. But uh, a lot of things that related and kind of led to a little stream of consciousness there. No, it it was honestly it was like even the stream of consciousness you had there gave me my own. You brought up uh, like mental dossiers of people, mm. and that's that's literally like how I was growing up. Was I always looked at somebody and I tried to figure out as much as I could just by looking at them, and I would try to make guesses in my head of like what's their background. Like that was one thing that I really liked to do when I was just kind of sitting there being on my own. It's like I'm gonna look at a random person. I'm going to try and notice things about them and see if I can kind of create a storyline for them. And if I know that person or if I kind of know that person or I want to know that person, I kind of test that knowledge against them. Um, mm -hmm. Or not against them, but like I'll engage in a conversation or whatever and I'll just try to learn about them and see how much of it was similar, how much of it was, wasn't. And so just seeing if I'm like right or wrong. But that was just kind of what I did for a super long time. Um, especially coming out of middle school and going into high school was like just trying to figure out people and like create a like a similarity between others and so then I could like easily figure out groups I could e easily figure out where I could fit in or whatever because growing up um, and this is I wanted to take it back a little bit too you said that you used to fight a lot a little bit or you kind of get stuck in fights yeah, yeah well I fought a lot growing up in my own way or kind of on my own because like you were saying, I didn't have the control of like the emotions at first, mm. but like I really cared about what I was doing. And so I often got into fights just because people would say things that I just didn't believe or I didn't think was right or I didn't agree. And as a kid with a little bit of an ego, probably I had to make sure that people knew my side of the thing. It was mostly defending myself because like if my mom liked something and my dad didn't like something, I had to try and defend it to my dad um, while also like pleasing my mom and then vice versa. So it wasn't so much of fighting because like I thought people were wrong as uh, I thought I was fighting because I thought people thought wrong of me. And so then I wanted to start avoiding all of those awkward situations because um, I didn't want to get in fights anymore. I didn't like fighting. It always made me angry and I lost my emotions and I almost got kicked out of school a few times for it. So I started doing those mental dossiers like how you, you said it. Just avoiding these altercations and avoiding issues. But then I get later on, I realize avoiding isn't really how you can get past that. You learn as you get older, you get more, you know, contrast, you get more experience interacting with people. And especially if you, I'm sure you can attest, the more you interact with different cultures, the more you understand that there's no one right way to live your life. And so you don't get so attached mm -hmm. to stuff. So it's like someone insults your football team. I know people who are willing to fight. 
Like you go mm-hmm. grow up in Alabama, you you know people. You insult Crimson Tide or Auburn, then someone's gonna. Oh, fight it's you. hands this <laughs> time. <laughs> you get offended by the simplest and like to me dumbest things sometimes. That was me. <laughs> um, on that note, you're you're sort of understanding how to interact. With, so it's not just about coaching; it's learning about interacting. Um, mm-hmm. And this is something that I kind of talk about too, because a lot of people who want to get better at fighting games also need to get better at handling their emotions. When I was young my dad was talking about like he doesn't have an accent he's from jamaica he, he moved mm-hmm. when he was 18 and i didn't understand this until i was like much older like how impressive it was but uh, he basically sounded like james earl jones or, or something along those lines he just mm-hmm. deep voice guy that sounded very american and like everyone else in his family after you know thinking about this when i was like 16 or so i'm like why why don't you have an accent when the rest of your family does basically explained to me that in the era that he grew up in it was hard to get a job if you have an accent so he taught himself how to not have an accent and after i got older and like interacted with life i'm like that's nuts but like he he was always very aware of american culture versus where he grew up so he felt Mm -hmm. like the best way to get ahead and make money is to figure out how to play the game how to talk like they talk and blend in so it was like very very interesting that that passed on to me and i learned how to basically code switch but i sounded like this in the hood so that's part of the reason why when i was going to school in like lower income areas a lot of people said I, I talked white basically so i was like that mm-hmm. that was a that was a trigger for some people and then like it was weird how it was an insult you know in new jersey but in alabama it was kind of a compliment to say oh you're well spoken for a black guy it's like mm-hmm. it, it's just really really interesting the dynamics there but anyways you kind of fast forward through all that and i learned a lot of how what you say can greatly impact somebody not just like what you say how you say it and listening to people uh without judgment a lot of times mm-hmm. you don't have to say anything they just see your reaction to something and they'll just tighten up and for mm-hmm. an extreme example, I can talk about politics with almost anybody, even if I'm strongly in disagreement with they, to what they believe, because I don't usually convey how I feel about things. I'll just listen without judgment. And they're just mm-hmm. way more open about talking. And I feel like to bring it back to coaching, the way that I conduct myself has made it a lot easier to develop trust. Trust as a coach, uh, more so from a, a life coaching perspective, but trust is really important because if people aren't sold that you you have their best interests in mind, they're not going to tell you their sensitive topics that might help them get better, that might help them get over certain humps. Like why, you know, some people are afraid of rejection because of something that has to do with their parents. And for some people, that's a very sensitive topic to come across. So if mm-hmm. they don't trust you, then there's less likelihood of them opening up, having that process. What do you think about the, like the concept of trust? Like how do you approach it? Is it something you think about? Is it just something you let your per- natural personality uh, handle? Where do you, where do you sit with that? I think, uh, I think it comes to me like very naturally um, because I've always been more like I've been the person that always puts the blame on himself about everything um, and just always trying to stack it on myself. And if anything's wrong, I'll put it on myself. And if there's something that needs to be done for people, I'll be the first one to do it. And it's just kind of how I've naturally been. We brought up something that I totally forgot. Um, you were mentioning trust. And now I'm being well-spoken. That was another thing. Whenever I'm in like Discord calls with people, um, a lot of people actually don't know that I'm half black. Uh, they're just like, oh, I thought you were just white. And then they see a picture of me and they're like, oh, wow. I'm just, yeah. like, shocked about it. But it's just, um, especially with my coaching, I found it uh, this year that like I'm always just trying to be available and help out anybody because you, you never know what situation someone's in. You never know like like the littlest thing that you can do can really change the way that they look at life and where they go. It's these small moments are, are huge. And so if you're not genuine with your own character and what you would do in these situations or like how you would, um, how you'd act, or if you're like a little flip floppy, depending on the situation or whatever, 
that's when I, I realized that like young on that like I wanted to be one version of myself. I wanted to be the toolbox that anybody could use whenever they needed to to just like or not anybody could use, but like if somebody needed help, I had a tool to help them. I had the resources, I had whatever I needed to make sure that you're successful. And I think that really clicked um, and started to develop and really grow in the way that I wanted it to in my first year of coaching at St. Ambrose. Because now I can't go into the room without seven different kids from all different teams just flocking around me trying to figure out what I'm doing. Like I'll have two kids from the league team, a couple kids from Overwatch, one kid from Apex and COD, um, and then my own Rocket League players just kind of sitting around me like, helping or, or not helping but just kind of like waiting around because I do one-on-ones with them that's one thing that we do in the program that's really cool that Chase put in put into places where it's just a safe space where we meet uh once every month I think every three weeks or so and we just talk whatever you want to talk about we just talk and it's really important to have trust within each other um, not only at a team level, but in a personal level, because if you don't have trust, you can't go to that person when you need it. And that's what I realized uh, right after I graduated college and I had a really bad heartbreak and I was really lost in my mental space. I just didn't know what to do because, again, I, I put everything on my own shoulders and I couldn't figure out what was wrong until I opened up trust to the rest of my family. And they told me and they taught me that it's it's not always your fault. And you have to be able to trust others and trust yourself to make the right decision. And just let it be that way. And so I really tried to adopt that and just stick to it. And so far, it's it's doing fantastic. I just kind of I just kind of meet people. I'm not really out looking for people, but I meet people. They say I'm a good person. I, I'm okay with it because sometimes I don't think that way. Um, but the way that they talk about me and the way that I get more people from it and the way that I get see the my the rest of my life grow. I think trust is super important. It's something that I, it was drilled into us at coaching school. Coaching school. I went to a school called IPEC, so it's the Institute of Professional Excellence in Coaching. Uh, this isn't where I got my degree in game design. This is after I graduated from college and I wanted to become a coach. And um, I have some notes on it. Like I got to go back and read my notes. I've been wanting to do this for a little bit now just for my own sake. Mm-hmm. But the, the concept of making sure that you develop that trust with somebody, uh, usually your client, being authentic though. Like being, not being afraid to be who you are as a coach, uh, or like show your personality or anything mm-hmm. like that, um, and not be, what's the word, manipulative, like not lying mm-hmm. or anything like that. As a coach, you have to actually be honest as well and like have their best interests in mind. So it's something that I already had that ability because I think that's something before I was a coach, I just naturally did. I don't tell mm-hmm. secrets when people tell me stuff and they say, don't say anything about it. I don't say anything about it. Um, and, and also confidentiality is really important as well. Having that mm-hmm. safe space, like you said, that's, that's really, really um important you know and that's something that i gotta think about because like i was afraid of doing one-on-ones so that's Mm -hmm. something that i've been thinking about is it might be effective to just have a one-on-one conversation other than the captain i never really had that opportunity other than just like you know Mm -hmm. you see someone's like hey you know how's it going how's how's life going how are your grades that kind of stuff but i had been you know i think about it because you're like are they doing okay how are they doing where's their mind at and uh doing it in a group of like college students they're not always going to be very forthright around how they Mm -hmm. feel with their co- like their teammates because uh, for some for some people they have to put on uh, a persona of being tough or looking tough or not nothing's wrong and as a coach you know something's wrong but they just don't want to say it so it's mm-hmm. like, yeah that's that's a really good idea yeah that's that's where we've seen the most benefit especially I've I've seen them not just for the players but even for myself of taking back and just listening letting people vent letting people talk about their whatever and actually learning about other people's lives it offers like a lot of perspective. 
But even for those ones that, like, we've got people that just, they don't really need the one-on-ones. Life's doing mm-hmm. fine. They've got good grades. School's going okay. The team's going okay. There's just not much to talk about. So we don't, they don't really need to use the time. Others need it a lot, and they really enjoy it, and it's very beneficial. But even for those people that don't need it, mm-hmm. every once in a while, they need it. They just need to get off a little bit of something on their chest or whatever, just a little bit. And that to them is massive. It may it may seem like a small like ten minute conversation. It's we usually do them for thirty minutes for every player that we have in the program. So that's about forty to fifty hours a month um, dedicated to just one on ones in our work schedule. But every once in a while, you get that one person that just never really needed it, and then all of a sudden, um, a dog passed away, or a pet passed away, or a family member, or something got really tough, or whatever, and that was the one moment that they needed to just vent and let everything out. And as long as you show up and you're authentic in that moment, that sticks to them. And then from that point on, they're authentic for however long it takes until they come into another situation where they have to debate, do I be authentic or do I be weird? But usually that that thought sticks in their head. And now we start to notice most of our players throughout the year become more authentic, more honest, and more understanding and trusting of the process. So I'm going to, I'm going to try something here. I sometimes will create terms in my head and I'll talk about them to explain like mentalities and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have a term. I don't know if it actually like exists outside of this and if it means the same thing, but uh, a while ago I created this term toxic accountability. And the definition it, that I have is that when your level of accountability becomes so high that it becomes detrimental to your success. Uh, so I like sharing that terminology with you. I just want to see like, where does that sit with you? Is that relatable? Is that something you've ever seen while you're coaching toxic accountability where you're just too accountable? Yeah. You're, you're basically, you do something wrong. It's like, I'm an idiot. I'm like, I'm bad, but that actually has a negative, uh, impact on you because you're, you're supposed to be your own best cheerleader. But if you're a person, if you <laughs> are the person that's like berating yourself constantly, that can get kind of toxic if you don't know how to keep that in check. Like you can be like, you know, stop slacking off, like stop being a weakling and then actually do mm-hmm. something about it. But there are people who get discouraged when they get to that level of accountability. So it's like they're holding mm-hmm. their accountability, but it's actually crippling them or it might be harming them a little bit or stopping them from mm-hmm. making mental breakthroughs and things of that nature. I think I've probably seen it in other people, but I don't recognize it because of how severe I did it to myself. Growing up really early, or not really early, but like growing up like really early when I was younger, when I really started to struggle with that duality between my like, which parent do I make happy or whatever, I really wanted to make them happy, but I realized I couldn't do it for both of them. And so that's where I think that toxic accountability, like I never had a term for it. That's just, I don't know. That's just how I thought of my life. But like, that's, I feel like that's way too accurate to how I was growing up because I would do a lot of self-abuse when I was a kid. My thing was I would slam my head into tables. I'd punch myself in the face. I'd punch myself like as hard as I could, just because I felt like it was my fault. Mm. And if it was my fault, I deserve to get punished for it. I deserve to like it, I something needs to happen to me to atone for whatever went wrong. And I took that, like, um, that started in elementary school. And that's just how I developed growing up was, like, if something was wrong, it was my fault. And then when I realized the physical abuse of it wasn't good, I replaced it with mental abuse. Mm -hmm. And just, like, really bad self-talk, really negative self-talk. And anytime something went wrong, 
it's your fault. And I would always tell myself, it's your fault. It's your fault. It's always your fault. And it wasn't in, it wasn't until I had that horrible breakup in my junior year that I realized this was the first time it wasn't my fault. I did everything that I could and I, I did it the best that I could. And everybody else agreed that I did it the best that I could. And it genuinely wasn't my fault. Cause like going up in all my relationships, I was always the one that the one kid that was just like way too demanding or like really wanted it to work out and tried way too hard. You know, mm. it was just like, Oh, um, I'll do this for you. I'll do this for you. Oh, I'll get you chips. I'll get you candy. You know, I'll, I'll take you here. Or I'll do whatever, you know, and nobody wants that. Nobody wants a person who's a people pleaser. And when that didn't work, Again, I just go right back. It's your fault. You're not good looking enough. You're not smart enough. You're not doing enough. You're not whatever. And so like that, I, that toxic accountability was like when you described it, like I, I don't know if you saw my face, but that was pretty scary. Like making the realization was like, oh, oh no, <laughs> that's, that's how I grew up. <laughs> yeah. I, so I, that was kind of me. I didn't do a lot of like physical self-harm, but I did a lot of mental harm like since mm-hmm. I was a kid all the way till like my 20s. And it, it was something that I, I noticed in myself one time. Uh, I remember being like living in San Diego and being aware of why I was so like um, it. There's another term that kind of goes along with it, which is the lazy perfectionist, which is someone who has such high expectations of themselves that they wind up not even bothering because they don't feel like they can meet those expectations. So it's like I uh, want to do something, describe. but <laughs> I can't I don't believe I'm going to be able to do it. So I just, I'm either going to put in weak effort. And then make an mm-hmm. excuse, or I'm just not going to bother trying at all. And that's that's kind of where I was for most of my life, where I, I just held back a lot because you know I was like, why bother trying? Because it's going to hurt my feelings, and then I'm going to like you know be mean to myself. So like that's where my head lied. And then I was like, well, now that I understand that, similar to you, I, I'm very uh, aware of technique, and I feel like the mind is like the ultimate thing that you have to perfect, like the ultimate techniques, learning how to be accountable, but not so much that it's toxic. I had to learn to do that. I had to learn to like love myself a little bit, which that term sounds cheesy, but learning how to appreciate who you are and the fact that you're stuck with yourself is, has been powerful for me, like learning how to do that. Mm. And then doing that with my students as well, helping them understand that like, you know, you're, you're worth putting in the effort, but also like you are, you need to learn how to fail because you're trying to avoid failure. And then when you do fail, you're trying to beat yourself up. That's not how you progress. Like you have to accept failure, learn from it, and then see it as a good opportunity to get better. And then, when you do succeed, because most people who are like this also don't acknowledge their victories, you got to be your mm-hmm. own best cheerleader. When you do something right, recognize that and stop focusing on the negative stuff. So it was like mm-hmm. this kind of cascade of different ideas and concepts that I personally was trying to work. Mm-hmm. I kind of learned and took to be my own. Like I made new terms for the things that I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. I, I resonate with this like super hard. And that's why I'm looking for this book, because I think you might really like it. Mm-hmm. Um it wasn't, it was, uh, so I'm going to go back to the, the weird breakup, but after that happened, I had so much weird stress in my body that I, I actually got sick from stress, but I went to, uh, I actually got lucky enough to go to a Tony Robbins seminar. My mom kind of saw how, yeah, my mom kind of saw how like down in the dumps I was. And so she like, she really put forth uh, a lot of effort and props to my mom for getting tickets. But I went to a Tony Robbins seminar. We sat there for f- was it 14 hours for four days each day? Mm-hmm. Um, I walked on coals, but it, I, I can't remember a lot of what happened, but I just know it was a really good primer for my mind. Um, and then I went into the summer and I read this book. This is called oh, The Four yeah. Agreements. 
by Don Miguel Ruiz. And honestly, the four agreements are like how to be coachable. That's where I learned, like during those two years of growth is where I actually learned I was supposed to love myself. I was supposed mm-hmm. to care about what I was thinking. And um, pulling in the book that we're reading, uh, The Inner Game of Tennis also really sealed that for me. I learned about the relationship between self one and self two. And I realized self one was just this, for me, was just this controlling overlord. Whatever he says needs to get done. And self two just got no credit for anything, even though self two is what made me amazing at Rocket League. Self two is why I am, I have such strong relationships. Self two is where my empathy goes. But for some reason, I feel like he always needs to be controlled or put into a box. Um, and then once I realized, like, I, I'm doing everything that I can, I am the person that I want to be. I'm just not the end product yet because that was the only thing that I cared about was getting to the end product, being the person that had all the resources that could do anything for anybody. That's not really going to happen until I get older, until I build up and actually acquire those things. But there's a framework that I can stick to. And it all starts with loving yourself, caring about yourself and holding yourself accountable. At the end of the day, you've only got one other person in your head telling you what to do. It's you. So I'll, I'll ask you this. This is like usually the one of the last questions I'll ask is like, mm-hmm. where, where do you want to be in, in five years? What is your goal in five years? Oh man. I don't know. I, I, I can honestly say that I don't know because I never really gave myself a goal. It wasn't until I graduated from college and started at St. Ambrose that I actually started to think of goals for myself it was always do like just get the immediate thing that I wanted, right? Do I want attention from people? Yes. Do what I can get to get attention. Do I want to be good at video games? Cool. Do what I can to be good at video games. And I would always burn out at some point because I'd have all this drive. I'd have all this passion. I'd have all this energy and I'd get to a really good point. But then I'd realize that I didn't know what I was doing it for after a while like that's kind of what happened with rocket league is like i just enjoyed playing the game and that's how i got to a high level but i never had a like an end goal or a future goal really like i always had an immediately goal immediate goal that i worked to like an objective in a video game you go do the objective cool next objective right i never actually did the planning part of it where you plan what's next so um once i hit like 14 and i needed a job my mom found a job at Jersey Mike's. I walked in. I knew people. I got hired. Cool. I worked there. Needed another job. My dad worked uh, at a shipping dock, and so he there was an open spot, and I said, sure, I'll do it. Um, going to college. Needed another job. Uh, needed to get an internship. Just found some random internship. Did it. Realized I didn't like it. Needed to find another internship. Did that one. Cool. Um, actually had a little bit of a plan for me. If I did the second internship, then I would have had a full-time job. And then, cool, that was my plan. Then COVID hit. So then I still didn't have a plan. And I was like, ah, coaching sounds fun. Chase needs a coach out at St. Ambrose. I'm going to uproot my whole life and move 600 miles to go live in Iowa. Here I am. (laughs) Start doing that. I'm coaching. This is what I'm doing here. Uh, First year just ends. I'm, for some reason, getting my master's. Didn't have a plan on that. But now I'm getting a master's. And now I'm getting to the point where it's like, okay, I've worked really hard. And now it's all up to me to decide what I want. And I never picked anything, really thought about it. So in five years, I mean, everything is going to be so different day to day, week to week, month to month, even year to year. I really have no idea what I want it to look like. 
I know I want to be financially stable and I know I want to be in esports in some way, whether that's a coach, a tournament organizer, production. I, I don't I don't really know. It's very honest. It's very honest. So what what would happen if you did decide to have a goal or a plan? What do you think would happen? I'd probably oversink it. <laughs> that's, that's that's exactly what's gonna happen is i'm just gonna like it, it's definitely not a good way of thinking but like the way i just describe things like good things just happen because i feel like i'm always authentic and i always work hard to what i want to happen mm-hmm. and if i do those things then i mean and as long as i keep my checks and balances and i keep learning and stuff i wherever i go i think i'll be happy with i don't think i'll like if it's it's winning championships with the coaching, I don't know, Cloud9 for Rocket League, subtle, subtle drop. Um, <laughs> but if it's doing something like that, then, I mean, that's amazing. That's cool. But if it's all of a sudden I go back to being IT or, or I don't know, because I have a degree in IT, if I go do that and I'm making money, cool. Just as long as I'm around people I care about and my life is stable, because if I overthink it, I'm going to ruin it every time. Anytime I overthink something, I ruin it. It's literally on the back of my phone. Hang on. Let me overthink this. <laughs> so that's a good segue because that reminded me of what I was going to mention earlier anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. So this would be the last thing that I'll talk about now is um, mm-hmm. I had a, somebody that I know in the fighting game community. He was asking me questions and he was talking about, you know, I was explaining to him my mindset when I play fighting games and, and when I play games in general. And he was like, do you think you overthink sometimes? And we got into this conversation of when to think and when not to think. Uh, which that's kind of an insult in fighting games, like playing with your brain off is kind of an insult for the most part. But like when you talk about self two from the book, and I I hope to talk about this in the future, so it'll make more sense for people who listen to the next episode as well. But uh, (laughs) um, I explained to him that when I'm practicing, I'm trying to just train my body to react naturally. So when I'm, you know, I'm learning new mechanics, I'm trying to pay attention and see how things work. Uh, I tend to be more cerebral, but it's like, I try to make things help me remember how to do things by feel. So that when I'm playing a game and I do want to go into that kind of mindset, I can just like, okay, my goal is just to pay attention, make my eyes pay attention to the things and remember like any kind of strategies, but just let my body do what it's supposed to do because I've trained it to do it. So I shouldn't have to really do any thinking in this moment and then I can analyze afterwards. And so like he didn't really, I I guess for him, I guess maybe he was worrying about like overthinking and things of that nature. But like, I guess the concept of, of being aware sometimes and not like being aware of what you're thinking sometimes and making sure that you're paying attention kind of, you know, maybe using your logical side of the brain, uh, but then knowing when to switch to just doing your body, like letting your body do the work. And then between games, kind of turning that off potentially or relaxing a little bit, kind of like how the book talks about. So I want to see where you lie with that when it comes to like overthinking and then practicing as well. And just like when, when you let self two work and when do you let self one work? Does that make sense? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that's actually a super good question. I really have to kind of think that. Um, I I will kind of separate it a little bit because uh, let's let's take it in context of like in game versus out of game, right? Even like with an inner game of tennis being the name of the book, but in game versus out of game. Out of game is everything from me going to school, living my normal life, uh, doing whatever, and just kind of like I, I don't know, just going about normal day life. In game will be any time that I'm physically active or competing in something or, or, or playing something. Because mm-hmm. um, when it comes to playing a game, that's when Self 2 almost takes over on its own and Self 1 almost doesn't exist anymore. 
for me. Because, um, like, going back to or well, really the concept of flow state is something I think I've been very familiar with my entire life because there's something I'm really about in terms of competition in-game, like when I'm competing in basketball or I'm competing in Ultimate or um, CS or Rocket League or especially games. Um, I really let Self 2 take over because when I'm out of game, that's all Self 1 does is think about what I should be doing in game, trying to create the feeling of what it's like to do that in game. Mm. So like if I'm watching a basketball player shoot, right? I'm really looking at his form. I'm looking at how his fingers roll off. What was the speed? Uh, did it flick really hard or was it soft? How high did he jump? Did it look like he gathered his jump? Is he tightening his muscles? Uh, same thing for like Rocket League. How smoothly did he get off the wall? How quick is he going around? Where did he hold power slide? Where did he let go of it? Mm. And I try to envision that feeling and try to replicate that feeling in my mind, almost like a shadow boxing in a way but like in my own head about feelings. So then when I get into game, self two just kind of does. So like, especially at our battle for the barn land that we were just at, I like that's whenever I get on stage or especially when I was talking before self one is constantly overthinking. He's trying to get every last little message he can in before mm -hmm. self two takes over. It's yeah. so like, that's why I was saying. It's like, all oh, my hands are cold. I haven't played in like four days. It'll be fine. Um, I'm just trying to figure out what's going on, you know, whatever. But then as soon as I get in the game, self one's just quiet. Self two just does whatever he wants. But when self two starts messing up a whole bunch, self one wants to start creeping in and trying to suggest things and say things and make changes. And that's my biggest problem with my coaching style is because I'm out of game, Self one always wants to interject into my players and always wants to say too much in between games. Um, right. And then when I'm playing with my players, and this is why I can't coach and play at the same time. I've come to this conclusion. I'm working on it. But I, it's so hard for me to coach and play at the same time because I can't tell who to give power to. Self one or self two. Because if I give it to self one, my play is going to drop and I'm going to be unhappy. If I give it to self two, I'm not going to be giving anybody good adjustments or good feedback or coaching that they want to hear from me why not because i'm too focused on also playing if that make, this is this is me if i'm playing and coaching at the same time if i'm playing on a team with people i can't give feedback because it takes me away from thinking about what play like what it puts me in the mind of self one and self two can't operate when i'm thinking about self one and I'm always thinking about like, okay, what needs to happen? What needs to change with the rotations? How do you, how do, uh, how does this player need to make an adjustment to feel better for the rest of the game? So I'm like way too hyper focused on that, and so I can't actually play as self two. So in in my head, I feel like self two could be able to shot call, which is essentially what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it, it depends on the individual skill. So like everyone has different mm -hmm. skills to be able to do things at the same time. Because uh, I, I feel like so this, my theory is that coaching and playing could be a very powerful tool. Because uh, I remember mm -hmm. talking about this during during the casting part of it. When it comes to the body one versus body two, which body two, like for for the sake of the listeners, is kind of like just mm -hmm. what your body does naturally, your, your instincts. Um, I don't know quickest. I can ways. I can explain it really really good. Yeah. So self one is your voice, right? Self one is the voice that you hear in your head. It's the thinking. It's the talking. It's the way that you actually like, kind of like look at the world and see things. Mm -hmm. Self two is like an inner child. They, they go off a of solely feeling. They have no right or wrong. It's just what things feel like. So, for example, think about walking. 
you don't think about walking. You don't think about how you put your heel down and roll your foot, or if you're a toe heel walker for some reason, how you put your toes down and then roll to your heel. You, like, you don't think about those things. That's self two. Self two is the stuff that you've practiced and rehearsed over and over and over again that you don't think about doing. Self one is just straight thinking. It's like Karate Kid. Wax on, wax <clears> off. Do you remember that scene? <laughs> yeah. So self two would be where he's just reacting to the attacks from paint the mm-hmm. fence and uh, I wash the car. Mm-hmm. Wax on, wax off, and then paint the fence. Yep. So mm-hmm. that, that's, that's essentially what that is. Back to my point, though. When it comes to like shot calling and things of that nature. Again, this is theory, but I don't feel like you need to, to coach like mid game. You mm-hmm. can let self one do some of that during like in between the games, but all of it, all of your attention theoretically should just go towards like shot calling and playing your game because shot mm-hmm. calling and, and calming is incredibly important. So if you are able, like in my head, I feel like if you're able to know a lot of what's happening, you can make way, like way more call outs and just use your players mm-hmm. as an extension of your own body. Um, mm-hmm. uh, again, that, that you have to practice that kind of thing and then incorporate it because that uh, sounds like a new skill for you. But I feel mm-hmm. like if you could master that, I mean, it'd be a real because uh, Counter Strike has a lot of that, has a lot of player coaches, and I'd love mm-hmm. that concept personally because I feel like once you get down shot calling, most players who are also coaches and, and can play at a good level, um, they can really help control the the momentum of the game mm-hmm. and also help keep morale. Uh, a little bit bolstered because mm-hmm. you have that respect as a coach. So you have that duality where you, you play good, you show mm-hmm. yourself as a player, but you also have that role as coach so players respect you more. Uh, but that's mm-hmm. just that's that's where I sit with it. So I feel like I'm, I'm curious to see in a year or so like how that goes for you if you mm-hmm. play with them just in scrims and stuff like that. But, mm-hmm. yeah. I think it really depends on what's the context, right? So, mm-hmm. for example, if it's Battle for the Barn – how we were playing there, I, th- I could definitely play and coach at the same time. It wasn't, it wasn't a thing because my sole intention there was to compete. It was to be a player. But let's say we're back at a uh, home office, right? And it's just a practice and we're just looking at doing some coaching. There, self one is probably going to want to take the priority because he's the one that's going to be doing most of, the, most of the explaining and stuff. But at Battle for the Barn, where my goal is competing... Self two takes more of the priority of things, and so I don't. It just depends on what is what is the context, what is the focus, what am I doing yeah. while playing and coaching? Am I focusing more on playing, or am I focusing more on coaching? If I'm focusing more on coaching, I cannot play and coach at the same time. If I'm focusing more on playing, I think I can. Is that more of your mentality or the mentality of your players? Min mine, okay, hundred percent mine. Cool. I'll have to check back in that like a year or two just mm-hmm. to see where you're at with that. Uh, I, oh yeah. I, so I will say, kind of like you with the men- like we talked about the mental dossiers. I, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm really good at seeing people who are going to be successful. So I want to call it beforehand because I think you're going to mm-hmm. go places, and that you know, hopefully I'm up there as well when when you're there. But uh, I love oh, no doubt. that. So we'll, we'll chat again. Mm-hmm. I want to get through this book, and maybe we can re-talk about that. I'm mm-hmm. definitely going to talk about the book at some point. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I. I appreciate you coming on the show with me, talking with me. This has been really fun. But yeah, um, I, yeah, I definitely hope you come back on the show. Mm-hmm. No, I would love it. This is the first podcast that I've ever done. Um, I hope I didn't ramble so much, but you can ask anybody right now. Uh, Chase, Nando, Kinsey, my girlfriend. Um, not Kinsey's not my girlfriend. Kinsey's Chase's girlfriend. But my girlfriend, my mom, my dad. I told everybody. I was like, I'm going to do a podcast. <laughs> so exciting. I'm going to do a podcast. And that's why I was like, dude, just be calm. Don't overthink this. That's it. <laughs> yeah, use yourself too. Um, but yeah, so before you head out, is there any like thing you want to plug? Any uh, like where can people find you if they want to? You know, they're interested in in going. Well, I guess where is your school? Uh, and like where can they find out about you? Uh, 
I can't use the words. Where can they find out about you personally and also about St. Ambrose? Ooh, okay. So I'll start with St. Ambrose. We're in Davenport, Iowa, located in the Quad Cities, um, right off of Locust Street. Uh, it's a nice little Catholic college, uh, ca Catholic private school, doing our thing. Um, you can find us on SAU Esports for that Twitter, um, and we post a whole bunch of stuff there. Uh, and then uh, I believe our link tree is attached to that too, so you can find literally everything, uh, our application if you're interested and want to want to get coached by me for some reason. But all of our Twitters, Facebook, socials, merchandise, uh, all that good stuff. So that's that's the St. Ambrose. Um, we've also got our Twitch that's linked there. Everything's linked there. So just go to our, our, our Twitter, SAU Esports, or I think it's SAU underscore Esports. And then um, we got all the links there. But for me personally, um, Twitter at Gatormelon. I don't post. I'm not a huge social media guy, which I really definitely need to, if especially if I'm going to get my networking going. Um, but I also do third-party coaching on Medify.gg slash at Gatormelon. Um, you can find my profile there. I can do some coaching with you. But if you're really trying to learn from me, just find my Discord or hit me up on Twitter. I'm open for discussions. I just don't post a lot. There you have it. Okay, well, thank you so much. All right, guys, I appreciate you listening. Thank you so much, and I'll see you all in the next one.